0: You are looking live.
1: I don't believe what I just saw. It is basketball. From the world's largest snow globe, it's the 252. What sports talk radio sounds like is done by academics. I'm Chris Garrett, history professor at Bethel University. I'm Chris Moore from the political science department.
2: And don't call it a comeback, but I'm wearing my glasses from 1998. I was going (laughs) to
1: say something, but I wasn't sure.
2: (laughs) Yeah, can I tell a quick story? Please do.
1: (laughs) This is not really
2: sports related, but we live in a... I, I walk to campus, right? Yeah. We are in the middle of a snowstorm. I don't like where this is headed. Yeah, and uh, it's a wooded campus, right? Oh. So, Chris. Were you attacked by a badger? Well, no. Uh, Chris Gertz. you know the feeling of being relatively tall in a yeah. wooded area. A bit. I was walking in, and a branch caught my glasses and flung oh, them no. far away. I, I couldn't find them, they're buried oh, in the snow no. somewhere. I will never find those glasses. Oh, that's a shame. So I had to go back home and get these beauties,
1: um, which actually work. <laughs> it <worked>. looks great. <laughs> they yeah, work I, really like, well. It's your ID photo. Come to life. That's right. Okay. So. Well, I'm sorry this is not a video series, but this is a podcast series instead. So instead, you'll have to enjoy the dulcet sounds of the bespectacled uh, Professors Garrett Mulberry and the unbespectacled no. do you wear contacts Chris? nothing know. just perfect I have, vision wow. I have reading glasses for eye strain which oh. I wear occasionally yeah, okay. he is but Ted Williams like in his vision Hey, That's kind of a foreshadowing of what we're going to get to. It's snowy outside. I'm not quite sure why we have classes today because there's a lot of snow coming down. (laughs) Some of us don't. (laughs) So we thought it'd be a good week to talk about baseball. It's also spring training time. Pitchers, catchers have reported. So in segment two, we'll be breaking down the history and politics Mm -hmm. of America's national pastime. Now, it might seem like this is the time of year where football is utterly meaningless to us. We're never going to talk about it. We're only going to talk about football for about five minutes here because there are a couple things I wanted to get your read on. So first of all, you might be aware and might not... There is a new professional spring football league inhabiting the space once uh, held by the USFL. It's called the Alliance for American Football. Mm-hmm. They've had two weekends of play. Which sounds
0: like a super pack, by the way.
1: It does, right? It sounds like Marvel owns the rights to this.
2: Yeah. Um, Make football football again? Or... So it's, if you're not familiar,
1: Actually. it's eight teams mostly in the southeast and west, so like San Diego, Arizona, Salt Lake City, San Antonio. I'm not going to try to name them all. Okay, I got Memphis, Orlando, LA. Is this the league that any Fantasy, given... Fantasy, Fantasy <laughs> I, Alliance kinda, football? I, I'm afraid I know too much about this. I actually did watch part of the first game. They actually had on CBS with pretty decent production values. It got a better number than the NBA game on ABC. <laughs> is this
2: the league that Oliver Stone's Any Given Sunday is based on? Is there a new Albuquerque expansion? <laughs> it kind of looks like it should
1: be. Um, so anyway, we'll, we'll come back to this once distinctive about it. But there are also two more spring football leagues in the works. They just couldn't work it out together? Vince McMahon is bringing back the X. Ex- SFL yeah. yeah. for <laughs> twenty twenty. <laughs> and perhaps most intriguingly, have you heard about the Freedom Football League? Oh no. I know, but I love everything about this already. You will because it was announced on ESPN's Outside the Lines last year by one Ricky Williams. Mm. Uh, what
2: kind of freedom are we talking
1: about? Well, lots of freedom. No, so what's distinctive freedom. about it, and I mean, they're all distinctive in certain ways, but the Freedom Football League is intriguing because it's basically the Players League, talking oh, back okay. to distant baseball history of mm-hmm. football. So it's like, so it's Ricky Williams, Simeon Rice is in it, Jeff Garcia is a general manager of a team, Terrell Owens has some kind of role in this. So the idea is uh, different ownership structures, so player-owned, fan-owned. I think there's a limit on how much you can invest, up to like a million dollars. So they're actually trying like small donor That's kind of cool, actually. I like that. Um, There's some kind of expectations in everything from like boards of trustees down through management about um, racial equity, gender equity. Oh, there's a kind of social justice thread running through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. I am more and more in on this as you talk about Yeah, it. so, I mean, it's interesting. Actually, when I actually want to come back to this. At some point, I want to talk about the new Steven Soderbergh Netflix film about, I mean, what if basketball players took over. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, like, we'll come right, back to this. Right. So, uh, I guess my main question, obviously, is, like, do we actually have, even in this football besotted land, enough appetite for not one, two, but maybe three spring football leagues on top of the NFL, college football, et cetera? My reaction is certainly not, Mm -hmm. but we do have room for more
0: football. Um, America's appetite for football and the amount of of toll that football takes on the people who play it mean that there is space for more people to play more football. Mm -hmm. And uh, probably not three spring leagues. Well, so let
1: me put it this way. Um, In five years, how many spring football leagues will be operating?
2: None is my guess.
1: Okay. So why none? Because, I mean, I think Chris has a point in a way. Like, there is appetite for this, apparently. Mm -hmm. There are players who would love a shot. Like I mean, these are never going to be the caliber at the NFL, or at least not quickly. Right. I I
2: just, I mean, this, the USFL is not the only attempt at this. This has happened before. I just, I just don't think that, I think football is, has its own shaky ground that it's on in general, Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I just don't. I don't think I think you'd be better off trying to put in a bunch of money to compete head to head with the NFL and mm. try to merge into that than you would to spread. I just don't know. We just finished this the and it's a slog or a joyful slog of the NFL season. I don't know that there's actually uh and that there's actually enough fan interest. I think we I think we pivot to baseball and we pivot to March March Madness mm-hmm. and those kind of things. Well, I just don't know that. So it's, let me
0: go ahead and make a case for this? So I think the number is actually one plus or minus one, uh, which means you could end up with zero um, if the NFL basically...
2: So fo- you're taking three numbers as your choice. <laughs> late, I didn't know I'm, we I'm, could do I'm that. I'm settling <laughs> on
0: one. I'm settling on one, but here's how I could end up being more than one or less than one. So less than one is if the NFL just says, we're going to slowly grow our season. We're going to continue to exert control over the player base by increasing the size of our rosters. More games, more players per team, uh, to fold more people into, uh, to just deprive the, uh, the rest of the leagues of talent. And we'll continue to dominate the cultural landscape that way. If the concussion kinds of conversations reverberate more and more uh, within society, you could see the NFL uh, shifting gears by getting rid of preseason games. Mm-hmm. You could see the NFL getting rid of, uh, paring down its, its, its playing schedule a little bit. And as a consequence of that, there'll be more of a gap in the calendar. And I could see another league stepping in, particularly a freedom league or something like yeah. that, to fulfill so, that. Gap. So, so
2: you're making the case for how it could happen. Do you really think that that will happen? Yes, I think the NFL will get rid of preseason. No, no, leagues. no, no, no. I mean that there will be a viable spring football league. Like, like that's the question I want the answer to. Not could you make the case for how this could position itself? Do you actually think in five years there will be a even quasi-viable spring football? league?
1: Quasi-viable, yes. Okay, so here's the other scenario that's been talked a lot about, especially with this alliance, because the alliance is not set up as a competitor to the NFL. It has a lot of old hand NFL types. Um, I mean, it, it varies in rules, but basically, it's 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 very NFL like. What the NFL does not have is a developmental league since the World League of American Football shut down, right? And in a sense, harkening back to our conversation last week, couldn't you move? I mean, it, functionally the NCAA is the developmental mm-hmm. league, right? And so you, you wouldn't have a like fall developmental league going at the same time as the NFL in the way that you do in all the other sports. And so the spring is the natural spot to do it to give experience to like, you know, essentially practice kind of squad players and others who are marginal free agents. I mean, what I'd be interested in seeing is like, could you get to a point where this has supplanted the NCAA? Like, is is it a greater not, threat? Not, to in, the, five in, <laughs> not no, in five years. Right? No, but like, is it ultimately a greater threat than NCAA Division One football? I mean the FCS, I guess. Mm-hmm. Then it is a threat to the NFL. What it's a threat, perhaps,
0: to is not Division One, but Divisions Two II and Three. So uh, uh, the premier football programs that make a lot of money for their schools, mm-hmm. those I think are not threatened. But, mm-hmm. but a lot of schools spend money on their football programs. And for those schools, especially as budgets become tighter... As we talked harder, about last week. As we right? talked about Malone, yeah. Yeah. that that could expand to other kinds of larger schools.
2: Well, and do and you think it would swallow up the low-end Division I non-power conference? So, like, we end up with with uh, 64 Division I football teams, and that's it. Like, cut
1: the number in half. I could buy it. I mean, because, like, wouldn't you assume that on every... Football size so said FCS, FCS is Division One, to right. Like every FCS Division Two, so scholarship level, pretty significant size unit. Yeah. Like there's at least one or two possible NFL type players there that could fill out rosters for. This. Like most of them will never get there. Sure. But that's true of most. But Division there's the potential one. for them. right. right. Yeah, but yeah. There's enough there that you'd actually be able to, again, kind of do like the baseball minor league or a basketball D league kind yep. of model. Yep. Yeah,
2: I think it would have to be deeply connected to the nfl though i don't think it i don't i don't think as a competitor league it would
1: okay so let's pivot then from that into the second question because in many ways i think we're all we're operating here mostly on the assumption this is the most powerful wealthiest sports league in the world it will continue to be so it's the most popular sport but chris hinted at our second topic which is Mm -hmm. Should we even be watching professional football? So this comes to us from a Facebook commenter named Bill Lautenschlager. Sorry, Bill, if I got that wrong. Who dropped a couple of links on our Live from AC Second Facebook page asking us to talk about the, basically an ethical question. Should we be watching the NFL in light of mostly the links he shared had to do with uh, the degree to which concussions and other injuries are leading to CT.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, now, you could also say, like, maybe you should be boycotting it because of other kinds of, like, justice issues or something. Mm-hmm. But like, let's just kind of leave it at the player health sort right. of issue. Think about the kind of effects we've seen on people who played football all their lives, um, developed CT, other problems, had some suicides, right? Like, you yep. know, we've had some studies now done about this. Next week, I want to talk about this in light of Bob Costas. You might have seen the ESPN story about yep. Bob Costas essentially lost his gig hosting NFL games because he wanted to speak out against concussions, right? So we'll come back to this. I would
2: week. actually be interested to hear uh, Chris Moore talk about this because this was something you uh, wrestled with and made a decision on three
0: years ago, four years ago? Oh, yeah, about four four years ago or so. Yeah,
2: so, so A, I'm curious to, to hear what that decision was and how the last four years have been. And this is somebody who is, um, who is, has been a football fan, mm-hmm. went to the Ohio State University, yep. like that's – a pretty big deal so i'm, I'm yeah. sort of curious to hear your 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 narrative of that so i'll i'll, I'll give
0: it briefly and also um, i want to say that this is sort of where i've arrived at i don't think this is a particularly well-reasoned ethical choice um but it was one that i've uh it's one that i've settled on and it's i was uh a pretty innocuous comment by a friend of mine was asking me well how do you how does it sit well with you this all this you know these studies about concussions, C, uh, CTE and injuries, but also um, you know the high rates of bankruptcy amongst professional athletes, financial mismanagement, league exploitation, all those sorts of things. And I just decided to take the question seriously and to think really hard about it. and what it led me to is this it was this um, decision to basically, I needed to reduce the prioritization of football in my life. Um, that I wasn't going to become an advocate for abolishing football. I wasn't a, I wasn't going to um, virtue signal my friends about how awful football was and shouldn't they feel bad for watching it? And quite the opposite, in fact. Like if if football's in the zeitgeist, it's not hard to follow the sport in a general sense just by living in America. And so I decided that I wasn't going to, you know, um, ruin anybody else's fun. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wasn't going to go out of my way to to celebrate the sport. So. Um, Try not to watch the games. Gave up fantasy football. Gave up all those kinds of things I really enjoyed. That said, I haven't been a, a, a perfect adherent to that. I haven't been monastic in my abstention from football. I'll still catch a Buckeye game a year or so. And, um, you know, I'm, I, could, I could tell you how the team's doing. I could tell you how things in the NFL are generally shaking out. But I'm trying to make it less part of my intentional, or intentionally where my eyeballs go. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly where my dollars go I don't think I would buy tickets to a game anymore
1: Right, I mean I, th- I think that's what Bill was getting, like in a way are we Complicit, not just if you buy tickets But like the NFL is wealthy because of TV Contracts, right? right, and if you watch it You are participating in that, so You know, I've come to a kind of similar Point that's even less well Thought through, I mean I think yours is very well thought through I haven't really come up with a coherent Thought in this, but I have noticed myself watching much less NFL football. I've never been to an NFL game. I wouldn't go to an NFL game. And we've made clear to my son that he will not be playing football at any level. Now, at the same time, I want to make a couple of things clear. One, I think it's entirely appropriate for this podcast and the course we're doing next spring to do a lot about football. And not because we're celebrating it, but because... We're examining it. You're right. I mean, the whole idea of the course and the podcast, this is a way to get at some larger questions about American society, politics, justice, health, fitness, faith, et cetera.
0: It's a lens by which we view the American society. In
1: America, like much as I would wish this was just about baseball, you have to do it through football. We would not be connecting with our students, listeners, et cetera, if we avoided it. So please don't take that as a celebration of the NFL. We will be very critical of the NFL. Second thing, I do think there's some nuance to be called for here. Like, Mm -hmm. NFL football is played differently than even the highest levels of college football, and there are a lot of differences in how college football is played and then high school football. Mm -hmm. And I would add, every sport has capacity for serious injury. Yes. Like, I'm married to someone who has worked with athletes in volleyball, soccer, and basketball who also have had significant concussion issues. On the J-term trip Sam and I led, I had a long conversation with a student who was a hockey player who'd had five concussions and had to give up the sport entirely, right? Like, I think football is a different level, but I mean, like we're drawing lines here Mm -hmm. and I I don't feel good about my ability to draw those perfectly. Mostly, I kind of thought this would be a really great topic for a Sarah Shady Public Philosopher podcast Mm -hmm. if she wanted to revive that series. And I I also know we'll come back to this because one way or another, it's going to keep popping up for us. Um, Okay. Well, let's move on to just kind of update some things from last week. First of all, we played our first game of More or Less. Yep. Chris and I had to argue uh, currently uh, basketball players after they finish high school are required to... Functionally, spend a year in college before they go to the NBA. And right. Chris argued it should be more than one year. I argued less. We put it out as a poll, along with status quo as an option. Mm-hmm. I didn't look at the total number of votes, but 100% agreed with Dr. Moore. Did
2: that That's... surprise you? That seems like a very, I'm like a very conservative uh, position to take.
1: I'm, I, well, first of all, I'll say I cast one vote in favor of the Moore position. Oh. and so that might have been the only vote, as far as I know. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I didn't actually check the total number of votes. Uh, it is unusual. Mm-hmm that there would be unanimous support for that
2: position. Because, I, I mean, I looked at that, and I say, for myself, selfishly, I would love it if people had to play four years because I like mm-hmm. college basketball. But in my head, I would say, well, that's not a that's not a fair rule. Yeah. So right.
1: mostly, I, I don't want to linger here, because actually in March, we're going to have a whole second segment dedicated to college basketball. I think we'll talk about the O'Bannon case, and we should mm-hmm. circle back to all the issues we briefly raised in more or less. But we got more or less off the ground. Uh, we're gonna have another game, another poll in our second segment. Stay tuned for that, Sam. Uh, we did three to see last week. Were they worth the watch? Uh, all right. So starting off,
2: uh, I said that on Friday you should watch the Oregon Oregon State women's basketball game, number three versus number nine. Uh, Oregon won that game, seventy-seven sixty-eight. Uh, that was that was at um, at Oregon. Uh, Sabrina Ionescu had Good name. had uh, twenty-nine points, five rebounds, nine assists. Now, here's how powerful the podcast is. This actually led me on Monday to watch the entire rematch where number, then number 12, Oregon State, hosted then number 2, Oregon, and Oregon State won 67-62. It was a great game. I really, really enjoyed it. so well,
1: I didn't know they did home-and-home home games in college basketball.
2: I didn't realize they did them back-to-back, but yeah. that's that's how they do the Civil War in Oregon, I guess. Oh, wow. okay. yeah. that's it's great. That's, so that's definitely fantastic. worth the watch. Uh, Chris Moore said we should watch the 61st running of the Daytona 500. Denny Hamlin won his second Daytona in four years. In a race that was clean until it wasn't, the last 10 (laughs) laps got real ugly. Uh, Chris's pick, Joey Sliced Bread Logano, finished a close fourth. So we're going to give you a worth the watch on that. Thanks. And then Chris uh, Garrett said we should watch uh, the FA Cup game between Millwall and AFC Wimbledon. Millwall won 1-0
1: on an early goal from Murray Wallace. Now, I have to minute. admit something. I, I play along with 3 to c but I also don't have cable. I'm not going to watch hardly any of these things, so I have no idea if this was actually worth the watch. 1-0 could be a great game or it could be utterly well,
2: terrible. Well, it's in, it's interesting that the this is what I want to say. The goal was in the first five minutes, mm-hmm. um, but but they didn't score a second. So that I would say, yeah, worth the watch because okay. you're still in that game. You're okay. still in that game. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I'll take it.
1: All right, so that's our first segment. Uh, We're going to come back in segment two to talk about the history and politics of my favorite sport, America's rightful national pastime. That's right. It's baseball season on the 252. week in
0: sports history. San Francisco, California, February 20th, 1963. A year after leading the Giants to the World Series, Willie Mays becomes the first National League player in history to sign a six-figure contract, inking a $105,000 deal. May hits 127 home runs over the next
1: three seasons, winning his second MVP trophy in 1965. Daytona Beach, Florida, February 21, 1948. The National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing is founded by a group of drivers led by Bill France Sr., who runs NASCAR until 1972, when he hands over control to his son, Bill Jr. Birmingham, Alabama,
0: February 22, 1893. In the first Iron Bowl, the University of Alabama football team loses 32-22 to to the Agricultural Mechanical College of Alabama,
1: later renamed Auburn. Lake Placid, New York, February 23, 1980. Speed skater Eric Heiden wins the 10,000-meter race. His fifth gold medal on that Winter Olympiad. He had overslept for the race because the night before he attended a medal round men's hockey match between the Soviet Union and the underdog Americans. 11 seconds. You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow, up to Schultz. Five
0: seconds left in the game. You believe in miracles? Yes! Unbelievable.
1: You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Again. All right, welcome back to the 252 two. here in segment two. We usually have an interview or a conversation. This week it's the latter. Spring training is getting underway this week in Florida mm-hmm. and Arizona, so it seems like a good time to talk about America's pastime. Baseball. Um, now, I have to explain a little bit here. The origins distantly of this course... Or that as soon as I came to Bethel, I started thinking aloud to students about, I'd love to do a history of baseball course. There actually are a fair number of baseball history courses out there. Um, Charles Alexander, a professor, I thought at Ohio University, wrote a nice textbook that's been used a lot. So I mean, it's a semi-serious kind of field, lot of courses. I never quite could get it off the ground. Uh, and so it's become instead, I think, better, a general history and politics of sports course. But in a sense, we both begin and end the course with baseball. Um, we're actually we were just talking yesterday to someone from the twins about doing a field trip to a twins game at the end of the semester We'd kind of do a behind the scenes tour talk about right. what goes on in a day in the life of that kind of franchise. Um, and we'll start with baseball and there are reasons for that tied to the history part of the course. in a sense, there's the greatest kind of continuity over you know professional baseball it starts in 1869. You could go back to the Civil War, watch people play baseball, and you would recognize what's happening. Right. Um, But there also is recognizable change over time, and so that's a nice model for how do we do the history of a sport. And we'll get to that because we're going to play Mount Rushmore in just a second and talk about how baseball has changed over time. But I thought we'd start by talking about the and politics part of the course. And and Chris, just kind of give us like two or three political science, politics, policy questions that you could ask through the lens of baseball. Right, and there's a couple of ways to, to, to cut at
0: that. And so oftentimes in international relations, which is my uh, bailiwick, we talk about whether we, th- we look at domestic politics and how they craft international relations and how they influence the world or how the world's and its structure and its, imped- and its forces influence
1: domestic politics. Do you the call same- that inpolitik in po- and Außenpolitik, in or is that just historians? Uh,
0: that's, that's just historians who also yes. speak German. Uh, we call it the second image and the second image reversed. That is cool. Not really. Nope. Okay. Um, but I will say. So, what does that, that mean in baseball? Terms? The, same, the same thing is also true in baseball. Yeah. We can either use baseball as our independent variable to look at how uh, politics have shifted over time. And an example of that clearly is immigration. Mm-hmm. We can understand a little bit of America's immigration policy through the waves of immigration and, and even how those are modeled in, in baseball, right? We see an influx at a certain point in baseball of Irish American players. Mm-hmm. And then in more recent uh, decades, we've seen an influx of, of Latin American players. Um, and even more fine-grained, the differences between the, the large wave of Dominican players and essentially this looming gap of Cuban players. And now with the potential for normalization of relations with Cuba... Will we see a big shift in American baseball as more Cuban players come to the United States?
1: You also can see internal migration, which we don't think about because we have open borders amongst the states. But, I mean, baseball starts as this very regional professional baseball is a northeastern game. Right. Right. And it shifts. You see this in, like, I mean, once African-American players join, initially birthplaces would probably be the southeast. But because of the great migration, it becomes California, Midwest, northeast. Right. Right. And that sort of
0: as baseball teams and the genesis of new baseball teams maps onto how America's own regional uh, immigration patterns have shifted, this also tells us something about regionalism as a political feature of American politics. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to share one quick thing with you. Uh, The Upshot at the Washington Post did an interesting study where they looked at um, hundreds of thousands of Facebook pages of people who declared allegiance to some kind of a baseball team as well as people who um, uh, declare allegiance to a political candidate. So they're just trying to match up, people who sort of are fans of both of those things. The, the thing we can say, first of all, is that baseball fans, on Facebook at least, are more conservative than the country at large. Mm-hmm. Not surprising here, baseball fans also skew a little bit older and a little mm-hmm. bit wider mm-hmm. than, the, uh, than the, uh, the population at large. Um, But teams did vary. Would you care to guess the most Republican-leaning baseball team? Not the players, not the management, but the fandom on Facebook. Might surprise you.
1: I was going to say Houston Astros. Uh,
0: You'd be in good shape. Uh, They're in the top five. But the most uh, red baseball team is the Cincinnati Reds. Huh. Huh.
1: That is very interesting. With a
0: fandom that compasses southwestern Ohio, north uh, so northern it, Kentucky, Appalachia, right? Yeah, this yeah. is this is an area Trump that country. also went very strong for Donald Trump in
1: the 2016 election. And we
0: are talking about the 2016 election here, sure. by the way. This is that's when the study was done. So what's the bluest <clears> team, man. the Oakland
1: Athletics. Oh. Kind of the Golden State Warriors in Major League Baseball. Right?
0: Exactly. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. So, uh, so there's so regionalism, immigration, two ways that politics shapes baseball, but baseball also shapes politics. And in some ways, here this is a Sherlock Holmes kind of question because mm-hmm. it's the dog that doesn't bark. Hmm. Um, Compared to football and basketball baseball subsumes a much larger number of athletes And yet has been much more politically quiescent Mm. over the last few years Think about um, the controversies in football about kneeling for the national anthem Think about in basketball teams deciding not to visit the White House Making other kinds of political statements and splashes Um, LeBron James wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt for a shoot around All those kinds of things None of this is happening in baseball Mm. And that's sort of a there's sort of a question about why that's the case. Baseball, in some ways, has the largest number of non-American players. Mm-hmm. Um, well, hold aside hockey for that, but yeah, yeah. Um, is that part of it? Is it the the league exerts greater control over its players and political messaging? Is there something else that's going on here? But for whatever reason, baseball is not making the political waves that other sports are. Mm-hmm.
1: I think that, you know, I want to kind of put a pin on that. We'll actually talk in March about um, dissent in sports. Mostly we'll be talking about that with a sports historian about football. But it might be worth asking the same question with mm-hmm. uh, Paul. Okay. Uh, any other questions that you want to Well, throw um, what out just to think about? you think
0: Christ. about how baseball shapes politics also, I would just, la- last. I would suggest that it's, it's f- baseball is frequently used both in general and in specifics as a rhetorical device. Mm. Uh, Baseball is definitely the safest sport for a politician uh, to declare allegiance to. Hmm. Um, And so as we move into the 2020 election cycle and you want to see a a candidate try to identify with voters and try to appear homey or having some kind of a, uh, um, a grounding
1: in a certain region, look for those baseball caps. Oh, interesting. All right, it'll be fun to talk more about this as we go. Uh, let's now kind of dip into parts of the long history of baseball by doing our Mount Rushmore exercise. Sam, do you want to explain to us what the Mount Rushmore idea is? Yeah,
2: so <clears throat> if you're going to make a, a monument or memorial to the history of baseball, what are the uh, what are the four heads you would put on there, uh, like the actual Mount Rushmore? Um, I think as we were looking at this, we weren't looking at the four greatest players or something right. like that, but the, the people who made unique and lasting impacts on the sports, oh, uh, some of them may be symbolic of those things. Yeah. So I,
1: I did a kind of straw poll on amongst my Facebook and Twitter followers, and what I asked was like, I think I said, who had done most to shape baseball mm-hmm. over its mm-hmm. development? Because like the initial wave was, was players, and then later you started getting others. So what I want to do is I want to kind of give you a few of those results, get your commentary on that. At the end of that, just see if there's anyone we've missed that I haven't talked about. And then what we're going to do is we're going to then nominate a slate of candidates that our listeners can vote for. And you can vote for up to four of these people. So we won't actually be placing anyone on the Mount Rushmore. I think we That's have our your preferences. Job. But right. listeners, this is your job. So let me start with the obvious one. Not surprisingly, one player got named on almost everyone's ballot. People who didn't name him, I think, kind of realized he was and went other directions. Mm-hmm. But Babe Ruth was by far yeah. the most popular choice. Um... I think for obvious reasons, but we can maybe come back to the way he just radically reshapes the game, especially around the year 1920.
2: And the way he plays into the mythology yep. of the 20th and early 21st So
1: whatever uh, certain knuckleheaded Yankees relief pitchers think, Babe Ruth is a pretty monumental figure in the history of baseball. Uh, do you want to guess who's the next most popular player on the list? Well, only uh, actually Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson. Yep. Um, so here, let me pair him. Jackie Robinson was named uh, about four times as often as Branch Rickey, but Branch Rickey is uh, the most common non-player to have been named. So if you don't know the story, Branch Rickey was the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers who made the decision to break the modern color line, signed Jackie Robinson first to a AAA contract for Montreal, and then 1947 broke in with the Dodgers. Now, there's more to Branch Rickey's uh, claim to fame. He also founds the farm system as the St. Louis Cardinals general manager in the 1930s, um, which also leads to, like, national scouting. That actually has a lot to do with some of the migration patterns we're talking about. Um, I would also say I would put Jackie Robinson on there. He actually is a great player. I actually think his greatness is overlooked. He also spends half his career in Brooklyn and then the end of his career in Los Angeles, so he stands in for the really significant move to the West Coast which again reflects larger societal and economic patterns, but that reshapes the game in many ways. Uh, and then the other, the th- you want to guess the third most nominated player because the first two I think you could have pretty easily guessed at. The third is half as often named as Ruth, but stands out pretty clearly. I,
2: I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of I'm thinking most people are going with uh, like greatness of player.
1: Uh, t- I mean, it's a weird choice, but is, Ka, is it Cobb? Cobb only got three votes. So okay, he's good. he's kind of the next here, It's I, Roberto. Oh. Sorry, Chris. Were you going to say Roberto Clemente? I wasn't, to be honest. Okay. I was going to say Willie Mays. Okay, so Willie Mays was at three votes. So Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, Ty Cobb, Bob Gibson all got three. Ted Williams, Cy Young, Nolan Ryan, and Ichiro Suzuki got two. So I want to come back to those. Let's just talk about Clemente, who got nine votes. Mm-hmm. So, again, like... There is clear greatness here. Like if you want to name a, a you know, the greatest outfield arm in history, as well as someone who got three thousand hits, as well as has a tragic death in service mm-hmm. of a pretty noble enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so we're touching here on the social role of athletes. But I think most importantly, like if you ask me what's most distinctive about baseball as a major league sport, it's the presence of so many Latin American players. Yeah, I mean mm-hmm. that makes it stand out from everything else. I mean, it's really the first American professional sports league to become so internationalized long before basketball and hockey did. Football's only starting to break into Mexico, right? So I think he stands in. And, like, his struggles with that kind of stand in the shadow of Jackie Robinson but are very significant, so I wasn't surprised to see him that high. Now, looking at that list of players, I guess I want to ask, like, how much do you reward statistical qualitative quantity of greatness and how much should that show up? Because I don't want to, like, overlook players, but I also don't know that any of those are at the level of, like, Ruth Robinson and arguably Clemente. Right. As as I, I mean, I think game.
2: I think you would have to really fundamentally, not just represent an era, but fundamentally uh, change the trajectory of the game. Um, I kind of want to apply the... Uh, um, Feel the dreams rule to Ty Cobb on this list, mm-hmm. which is I will clean up the language, but uh none of us could stand him when he was alive, True. so we told him to stick it. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe we don't even put him on. So Cobb is actually an interesting character. I once made <clears throat> a really just kind of uh casual, not especially th- thought through um tweet about Ty Cobb and racism. And actually, I actually had someone correct me on this. The Ty Cobb's history with race is much more complicated than you probably expect from an early 20th century Southern athlete. He's also interesting as one of the first baseball players to get deeply involved in business. Mm -hmm. He buys Coca-Cola shares and also spends a lot of time kind of quietly helping other players at a time when there's no pension plan, there's no union So I I actually, you know, of that list, I actually think Cobb maybe does have the strongest case. Hmm. One thing that struck me about those players is it very clearly knowing who voted for each of them reflected a kind of nostalgia for a certain time period. You know, it's no mistake, most of those players played in the 50s and 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, I I think Bob Gibson has a pretty spectacular sort of three- to five-year peak. Sandy Koufax also came up here. Mm -hmm. Like, Bob Gibson... in in terms of like career achievement is not on the top five maybe not the top 10 of pitchers in baseball no one named walter johnson Mm -hmm. who's my vote for the greatest pitcher of all time one person named greg maddox one named pedro martinez who i think have better claims in terms of the context of their era but i think it does reflect like baseball is very much filtered through especially like your childhood experience of it and there's a I don't mean to denigrate the choice, but there's a kind of haziness to these kind mm-hmm. of suggestions, and a sort of golden age of baseball thinking right. here. Yeah, know.
2: I mean, I would say, I mean, far and away, my favorite player in the history of baseball is Ted Williams, and I would never put him on. Like, it just didn't even occur to me because it's he's maybe the greatest. You could argue among the greatest hitters or the greatest hitter mm-hmm. of all time, but that that's not a that's just not enough for something like this.
1: So, oh, sorry, Chris, go ahead. Is there? Uh,
0: you've, you've mentioned that baseball is the most durable, or perhaps the most static of our major sports, okay. and that allows us to sort of look at what a Clemente did or what a Ruth did, and say that's that's kind of comparable mm-hmm. to what athletes are doing today. Most people would not, e- even if uh, even as good as Bill Russell was in the NBA, mm-hmm. we kind of feel like if we put Bill Russell on a current NBA team, he would be a a good to middling player on a current nba team yeah. then not the same with some of these baseball players and so is that a qualitative difference do we sort of say, is is are baseball and football sports that have less memory because uh the sport has changed so much that we, we can't really compare previous eras
1: well and i think the other difference is that baseball because it's so predominant for so long it gets the best athletes now because of the color line the competition is not what it should have been up mm-hmm. through the 1950s, right? And then Latin American players being added to the mix. But for a long—I mean, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, by far the best athletes are going into baseball with, like, probably college football being second. And then I kind of treat things like boxing as separate from that. Right. And so, like— Would Ruth be struck out by modern 102 mile an hour flame throwing special use kind of relief pitchers? Right. I I don't know. I mean, so let me then shift now to a, a, a kind of someone only got one vote, but I think is important because he gives us ways of answering this question using statistics that have remained constant over time, and that's Bill James. So, Sam, I know you were going to nominate <laughs> Bill James for it. Why would Bill James – I would guess, like, some people don't know who he is, right. but I think there's actually a case to be made here. Yeah,
2: I mean, he's the 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 father of analytics and sabermetrics uh, in baseball and inspired not only the, the regular use of it in front offices and in managing, but even just when you look at – when you watch a game in 2018 mm-hmm. or 2019, you – you will now see st- stats you didn't see when I was a kid. Right. When I was a kid, it was batting average, home runs, RBI. That was all that you saw. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to see a guy's OPS. You're going to see his slash stat. I mean, and that's not complicated stats, but you're going to start to see mm-hmm. those things are now more valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you take someone like a like a Billy Bean who says, "Okay, well, I'm going to got
1: two votes by yes, the way. Well,
2: I'm going to take yeah. those things and apply them. Um, I mean, he has he has significance beyond just baseball too, because. That whole analytics movement as I mean, it's in baseball is where it was first really applied, but you see that in all kinds of other places.
1: And it does reshape the
2: game. Right? Yes. I mean, like the way people I mean, I think make the decisions. the narrative is baseball yes. is
1: this deeply conservative. And baseball actually is pretty rife with innovators who respond to statistical evidence. So analytics and sabermetrics before is the clearest evidence of this. And we see the way, yeah, the way people swing for home runs right now, the rise in like Base on ball rates, things like that, and what's valued but, in the game, right? right and what's yeah. valued, but like this is not a new story. Like for example, the platoon advantage—I mean—is something noticed, like in the 1870s, and managers start adapting to this and start crafting lineups and rosters to to create these kind of, essentially, trying to find marginal advantages in certain high leverage situations. Right? They didn't mm-hmm. have the language to describe it that way, but people were doing that over time. Um, Here, let me add another statistical kind of idea that no one mentioned but I think is significant. It starts with baseball and becomes bigger elsewhere, which is fantasy baseball. So this starts around 1980 uh, with a writer named Dan Okrent and some of his friends. Who gets the idea, like, maybe we could use statistics to actually engage in fans in playing at least the general manager-owner role in baseball. So it starts as something called Rotisserie League Baseball, mm-hmm. and then it explodes in the 90s, and then the internet amplifies it, and really then football kind of takes over. But at some point, I want to do a whole episode about fantasy sports, and the father of that is Dan Okrent in 1980s baseball. So I'm not, I think he's a marginal candidate for this, but I wanted to just mention that mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Let me mention a group we haven't talked about, except that Ted Williams was a manager after his playing career. No one nominated someone best known for being a manager. And that stands out to me because half of our NFL Hall of Fame were coaches, plus Bill Parcells and Vince Lombardi were finalists. No one nominated a single manager, and I don't think that's wrong necessarily. Right. right.
2: I mean, you had, I think the only name that, that appeared, I think people mentioned Pete Rose, as uh, who was a player and a manager. But, but not but, for managing.
1: Right, right, that's, right. right. That, that but was he
2: was for, not an yeah. unsuccessful manager. No, but it was not for his manager. Sure, certainly, certainly.
1: Right. I mean, so, like, I think what does that tell us about. I mean, managers, especially the first half of the 20th century, sometimes do function more something like a GM coach sort of role. Um, but I don't know who I'd say. Like, I, I'm not.
2: I mean, you can name the names that pop up, but it's not. I don't think
1: they belong there. And they're not right. as prominent, casual, even serious casual fans wouldn't know who they are. Like, I think if anyone, people would say Joe Tory, just because of recency bias. But I don't think he reshapes baseball in any way. Right. So that's one interesting. The other uh, interesting um, non-nomination, because Sam and I talked about this too, is no one nominated someone best known for being a broadcaster. Now, you've got some players on here who become like color analysts or studio hosts, but like baseball of all the sports, I think like does have some pretty iconic play by play voices mm-hmm. certain, who like they are the soundtrack of the sport. Whether more than, more than
2: that, because of the, and they're regional too. Because so. of the age of baseball, it was the way you experienced yeah. the sport. Right. Not just the soundtrack, but like there are people who for whom baseball is Vin Scully, or yeah. for whom baseball is Mel Allen, yeah. or you know where you didn't necessarily have access to a television.
1: And, and I would say Vin Scully too. Like, and so if I had to, I kind of tack that on to Jackie Robinson too. Like, me one more significance related to it. Um, we'll play at some point his call of Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's record, which is you know pretty memorable bit of audio in American history. Okay, let me go back can, to can I ask you. one more quick Sorry, question. Chris. One other category that did
0: get mentioned but we haven't discussed here are commissioners.
1: Right, uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis got two votes. Yes. He's the only commissioner to be named. Um, is that just
0: because he has the awesomest name of any
1: commissioner? No, I mean, he is the first commissioner, right? And, and this Correct. is in the wake of the Black Sox scandal. Exactly. Um, I mean, it does help solidify the color line. Is probably the most significant contribution, um, yeah. such as it is that he makes. Right. Um, at the same time, baseball then has had weak and strong commissioners. I don't know if that's really a defining element of the game. And, and, and Landis is also coming on the scene at the same time as Babe Ruth, who obscures, I think, what Landis does. So I wasn't surprised he came up I like, mean, like, I think you could have made a really strong case for Pete Rozelle, or yep. Paul Tagliabue on the NFL. Yep mount rushmore i'm not sure that works for commissioner okay Okay. uh three more kind of groups people i'm going to mention um so first of all sam mentioned pete rose who got one vote i think the stronger case uh being made partly by a colleague of ours at bethel jim bilby is for barry bonds Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and so Mm. like i mean in many ways like if you just want a purely statistical analysis of greatness he is there next to babe ruth and ted williams but a much more complete player than ted williams I don't think that's why Jim nominated no, Barry Bonds. No. I think
2: he nominated him for the very reason he's not in the Hall of Fame. Right.
1: Which is interesting. I had someone say, like, my criteria are that I'm not nominating a user. Right. I'm not, I'm, Clemens never came up. Um, I mean, those are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. But, like, I don't think like, that's true. McGuire, should be a criteria. Or Sosa. Right, but like in a way, like that is a hugely important part of baseball history, and Barry Bonds Mm -hmm. reflects that for better and for worse.
2: And it it might be even having this discussion that we're too close to it. Like, like it'll be it'd be interesting to think when somebody's doing the the two five three like uh, (laughs) seventy years from now, (laughs) if Bonds is an obvious like, well, obviously that talks about this moment because we maybe don't know what that moment means. You Know for quite a while still,
1: okay. Quickly, uh, two more groups. Uh, so one I was expecting, so three votes for Marvin Miller and two for Kurt Flood. So, Kurt Flood is the uh, player mostly for the Cardinals who ends up challenging the reserve clause and leads to the birth of free agency, right? So, like, on sheer like playing greatness, Kurt Flood obviously is not um, at the level of some of the other players, but in terms of significance to reshaping. The economics of professional sports, the kind of agency in many ways the players have, mm-hmm. also, but also like that ends up affecting like fan allegiances and how you interact with your teams, right? You don't have like people who spend their entire career at one team for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a stronger case again could be made for Marvin Miller, who ends up founding the Major League Baseball Players Association. So baseball has a long history of attempts to unionize, going back to John Montgomery Ward, the Players League of 1890, but it's always stopped by owners, right? And this happens in other sports. Baseball is the first one to get a union, the first one to go on strike, and still, I think, is the most powerful union in many ways. And Marvin Miller is the organizer behind all of that. But also, if I showed you the picture of Marvin Miller, I'm not sure. I I think I know what he looks like. But if I showed, like, ten serious baseball fans, they wouldn't know what that face is, right? So does he belong in Mount Rushmore? you have to have a plaque next to it. (laughs) Okay, and then finally... Um, So here's the interesting thing. Buck O'Neill was named twice. And Buck O'Neill was a pretty good first baseman in the Negro Leagues. Um, Satchel Paige was never named. Josh Gibson was never named. Oscar Charleston, Cool Papa Bell. None of the greatest Negro League players was named. I assume Buck O'Neill was on there as a kind of ambassador of the game who was featured heavily in Ken Burns' series on baseball. Right. Right. Um the only other Negro Leaguer who is named, and this was my favorite nomination the whole thing that showed some serious baseball knowledge is Rube Foster. And Sam, I think you can explain to us who Rube Foster is. So was.
2: he's the founder of the Negro League. So he's, he's both founder. a was a pitcher yeah, um He's but, a Hall of Fame pitcher. Yeah. Um but 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 founds the league. So he would be another I mean, I think having some kind of representative of that I think would be because that what that speaks to is a the the idea that baseball is not just the American and National League mm-hmm. and B that there is this history in the shadows that is still in the shadows and and it's um and 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 I think some of those players I mean this is where I, Paige was was my choice um as I thought about this uh they speak to again sort of the almost mythological quality mm-hmm. because there are numbers from the Negro League but not in the same way and and, and so it's more a story that's told.
1: And it's, uh, I mean, to go back to the notion of a prism or lens, it's a way to look at African American history. So, this is, you know, it helps you think about um, if you're an African American living in a segregated society, what do you do? Do you try to establish separate institutions? I mean, this is the Booker T. Washington of baseball in some ways. Do you strive for inclusion instead, right? And so, I mean, like, the other thing that Jackie Robinson accomplishes is the death of the Negro Leagues. And the death of that separate institution that had its own very loyal fan base, its own institutions, its own media, and that disappears. Um, And so, I mean, it also, I mean, it's tied in, it's the same time period as Marcus Garvey, kind of ideals of of negritude, of um, black being something to celebrate in its own kind of institutions, right? And so, Rube Foster, you might not have ever heard of, but definitely deserves um, to be read about. He also has an interesting religious history think he was a pastor's kid he has a conversion experience hmm. in the 20s hmm. okay so that's a lot. is there anyone else we're missing before we construct our ballot for people anyone who hasn't come up yet that you think we at least need to talk about it's a pretty good list
2: i feel okay. like i feel like when i made my list everybody's on there so, so here's so can, what can
0: I, I, I want to make a case for something and, and i don't have a specific name but I, I just want to say kind of as a ruling on something that we were kind of thinking around earlier. thinking we say Mount Rushmore. We're not saying the foremost exemplary people. No, no. Um, no, no. And so, uh, our reticence to include someone like Barry Bonds or to include uh, um, someone someone who's maybe who's more ignoble than noble. Right. That needs to be that needs to be considered.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, look at the actual Mount Rushmore. Like, I mean, I, I mean, Lincoln's. You know, I think fairly noble, but all of the rest have some problems to deal with. I think the criterion here is who are the four people who have done the most to shape the development exactly. of baseball over exactly. time for better or for worse, for whatever, whatever their character is. I mean, who has influenced the game the most over time? Right. So what I would like to suggest is we start with putting Ruth, Robinson, and Clemente simply because they were far and away the most nominated. Yes. I, I do want some players on there. So let's just start with those three. Now what I'd like is to fill in with six more and have each of us name two more. We have unlimited power to name two more that we think need to be considered. Okay. I'm going to take Bill James. Okay. All right. right. Chris, do you want to add one? Yeah. um,
0: I want want to ask a question, though. Yeah. Because I think I have an answer to this. But is there anybody who has played baseball in the last – well, I guess we talked about Barry Bonds. Um, that's that's our only player of and, and, and in each era. Yeah. yeah. Um, would and you, Greg Maddux. I mean, would you cra- would you before. would you comfortably say that of the last
1: decade those are the two most important baseball players? The oh, last two decades. Last I'd two say. decades. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, in terms of the shaping and reflecting changes in the game, like I, I think. I mean, I think Greg Maddox and Pedro Martinez are two of the greatest pitchers of all time. And it's like they're the next two in my mind, given what they did in the context of a steroid-enhanced offensive age to be pitchers of that caliber. But I don't know that they reshaped the game necessarily.
0: So here's the here's the here's my reason for asking this. I am succumbing to this not recency what's the opposite recency bias primacy bias. <laughs> um, and my inclination is to say Sandy Koufax, but I also would well, really don't ra- say Sandy Koufax. I'd really rather say Pedro.
1: Well, say, Pete. I'm sorry. Like, I just like Sandy <laughs> Koufax. That's an executive decision, right there. Like, he is an admirable guy for sticking to his religious beliefs, not fishing on the Sabbath. He has the greatest peak of any time. He was terrible before that. His career ends quickly. This, this is definitely a, like golden age of the night. Can't he represent
2: the move west though? Because
1: he got a lot better when they got out there. Right, we would <laughs> say Koufax. On. He also no. beat the Twins in 1965. That's right. So that's what this is really about. Okay.
0: Well, how about we can put Sandy Koufax on? Okay, so you don't you don't like the Pedro
1: pick then? <laughs> no, I, I do. I just don't know how is that reshaping baseball over time. I don't think it is. That's well, the then thing. why are we putting him on our list? Like, um, I mean, what's the case for Koufax or Martinez being on this list? The kid. Well,
0: mostly to the point that I think you've described. You've you've got three players on there, none of whom are pitchers. I wonder if there's like something about baseball that necessitates the inclusion of a pitcher. Okay. I
1: don't know. Same. Oh. You, I
2: think you get a pick, right?
1: Oh, so who are you doing? Uh, so I'll, I'll withdraw my objection because I said there was no vetoes. And you can do whatever you want. <laughs> you want Kopex or you want Martinez? I want Martinez. Okay. All right. Pedro joins. I will put Marvin Miller on. Okay. Same.
2: I, 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 I want to say Rube Foster, but I'm going to put Satchel Paige instead.
1: Okay. Mm. Fair enough. And I'll take Branch Rickey. Tricky. All right, so that leaves me with the last pick. I will put Barry Bonds on there just because I kind of want to see what happens on yep. this ballot. We, we could do 10. We want a round number. Is there one other? We well, is there anything
2: jumping out at you that, that we're
1: missing? Um, can we put Vin Scully on? I do please, want to broadcast. Please. Absolutely. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I, I, I'm yep. fine with that, too. Okay. All right, that's our 10. So we will put this on the Pieta Schoolman show page. We'll put the poll as a link on Live from AC second Facebook page. We would love to see a lot of voting here. Please vote for up to four of the 10 on the list. Mm -hmm. We'll announce the results on next week's episode.
2: touch with the 252 by emailing us at live from AC2nd at gmail.com
1: Okay, we're running short on time, so let's get right to 3 to see Chris Moore, lead us off.
0: Sure. Uh, the MIAC, uh, baseball basketball playoffs. Mayak, what's that? The Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. That's right. Uh, of which Bethel is a proud member. Um, is in the midst of its basketball playoff run right now with men's win semifinals on Thursday night. Uh, the Bethel women face off against Augsburg and the Bethel men face off against St. John's. Uh, winners of those games go to the finals on Saturday.
2: Okay. Sam. Uh, I am a big. I am a Bethel grad, a big fan of Bethel basketball. But I am going to pick the St. Louis Intercollegiate Athletic Conference men's basketball championship, uh, being held at Westminster College in Missouri, because the tournament features Greenville University, which currently leads the nation in scoring with 135.8 points a game. Running the Grinnell systems, so they actually average like 20 points a game more than Grinnell does. Um, under coach uh, Dr. George Barber on February 2nd, 2019, Greenville broke numerous Division 3 and conference records with a 200 to 146 victory over Fontbonne University. Now, I don't think they're the best team in the tournament,
1: but I would go to that game. I would love to see. So it. just briefly, Grinnell system, like how many three-pointers does this The team
2: basically take? basically it's 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 to shoot as many get as many shots lots of threes force lots of turnovers okay. win the turnover and the offensive rebound battle
1: okay i go a very different direction to a very different continent the 2019 african rally championship starts this week with le bandama auto rally in Cote d'Ivoire, ivory coast only 10 percent of this uh, car rally race finish that race so the entire arc spans seven countries in africa lasts until october
2: you're going to be glued to ESPN Plus for that, aren't well, you? I'm not even
1: sure ESPN Plus has this. I had to dig <laughs> up on the website. I'm not even sure this exists, but it sounded really cool. It so it's really it cool. There. Okay, so remember to cast your votes for baseball's Mount Rushmore, share your thoughts about uh, the future of professional football, whether we should be watching it, how many spring leagues, if any, are going to survive the mass that are uh, proliferating at the moment. One. And then anything else you want to do, you can email us at livefromacsecondgmail.com. Chris?
0: On behalf of my colleagues here at Bethel University, um, shovel out your drive, and go Royals.